0: This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. I ended last week's podcast by talking about how it will take a lifetime for Jesus to show you how to move outside the prison of yourself and join him on the wide open road of his extraordinary story. Well, this week we'll look at Jesus' how-to course about doing just that. So after our last visit home to Nazareth, he'll send out his apostles two by two with very specific instructions. These very specific instructions are all about evangelization, but they are also about breaking out of our own self-obsession. I'll start by reading Mark 6, 1-13. He went away from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who had heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get all this? What is the wisdom given to him? What mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed by their lack of faith, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called to him the twelve, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics, And he said to them, where you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not receive you, and they refuse to hear you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet for a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. Well, this is a great story, and it's kind of like If it were a movie, this is Mark, and we saw how one thing happened after another. Well, here's his first pause. He says that they came to his own country, and then on the Sabbath he began to teach. So it's kind of a break. But it gives us a vivid demonstration from Jesus about how home is no longer an option for him. Jesus announced the good news at home twice. He came back again despite being rejected and despite his townspeople trying to throw him off a cliff the first time. The people do show a spark of faith, but only in that they are astonished by what he has to say and wonder at where he gets all of this wisdom and mighty deeds. In other words, they see his fruits very clearly. They can see he's doing amazing things, but they don't judge him by his fruits. Instead, they pigeonhole him into their own small expectations of what they know of him growing up, and they take offense at him. Jesus answers famously that a prophet is not without honor except in his native place. You have probably seen that principle over and over again in your own life. Strangers are probably much more impressed with you than anyone in your family ever is. But there's also the same phenomenon in your behavior toward your family members. We tend to treat our family members a lot worse than we treat anybody else. Our phone voice for a stranger is respectful and kind, and our phone voice for our family members is abrupt and unnecessarily harsh. Anyway, the same thing happens here in the spiritual realm, where a lot more is at stake. It's crazy how people reject Jesus out of hand, but then fall for any crazy thing that comes along. Family members might be insistent that they can't possibly accept Christianity because of some stringent evidence standard they have, but then they're totally willing to make decisions based on their horoscope. I was fascinated by that book, Eat, Pray, Love, that was a bestseller about 15 years ago by Elizabeth Gilbert. She's a lapsed Catholic, and her book tells the story of her spiritual quest after her marriage falls apart. She says at one point, quote, I have always responded with breathless excitement to anyone who has ever said that God does not live in a dogmatic scripture or in a distant throne in the sky, but instead abides very close to us indeed, much closer than we can imagine, breathing right through our own hearts, end quote. That's kind of beautiful, and it's very much what the church has always said about God, from St. John the Evangelist through the mystics like St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Lisieux. But she doesn't want to accept any of that because it's part of the church. She doesn't want a bunch of men dictating to her through dogma and scripture. But then a little later on, she describes how she meets a Belenese medicine man who says, you will have only one child late in life, a daughter. Someday soon you will come back here to Bali. You must. You will stay in Bali for three, maybe four months. You will be my friend. Yes, she says. The guru continues. So you will come back here and live here and teach me English, and I will teach you everything I know. Then he stood up and brushed off his hands like that's settled. End quote. And that's what she does. She's 100% willing to accept commands from this man who will teach her the truth according to his understanding. She'll even change the course of her life to do it. She just won't do that for a Catholic wise man. She rejects the one she is familiar with and naively accepts one she is not familiar with. Why? Because of what the gospel describes next. It shows how we fail to recognize the very things we see right in front of us. Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary? His opponents ask. And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, they add. Well, okay, first of all, this is a treasure trove. This is the only place in the gospel that Jesus is called a carpenter or craftsman is a better term for it. Not the son of a carpenter, but himself a carpenter. That makes him a working man and not too good for labor, a model for lay people, not just religious. This is also the only place in the gospel he is identified as the son of Mary or identified by that phrase. He's a man identified with his mother, the woman that Catholics believe we go through to get to him. Even more helpfully, the people who object to Jesus here don't just mention his brothers generically. They name them, thereby proving that these are not children of Mary. James and Joseph, or Joseph is another way to say that, are well known as leaders in the early church. In several places, Mark identifies them as the children of another woman named Mary. Matthew significantly calls her the other Mary. The Bible often uses brothers to mean close relatives, and thanks to those extra identifiers, we know that this gospel reference is an example of that. At any rate, these men who are prominent Christians in the early church were sons of Mary, the Virgin Mary. It would be impossible to call her the Virgin Mary because their existence would be proof that it wasn't true. it's interesting to note that the same authority that tells us what books are in the Bible tells us that mary was ever virgin saint athanasius who lived from 293 to 373 gives us the earliest list of the canon of the new testament books we use to this day and he also says that the son of god took true human flesh from the ever virgin mary anyway but what's also helpful about this is that it shows that jesus expects us to have faith jesus is amazed at their lack of faith the gospel says which is itself an amazing statement We tend to think of Jesus' reaction being the opposite. We think Jesus must be silently congratulating us for being brainy and bold enough to believe in him despite the scanty evidence. But quite the contrary, Jesus is amazed at those who do not believe. And why wouldn't we believe? We live in a world of beauty that is clearly the work of an artist, a knowable world that is clearly the product of an intelligence, and in a world in which goodness triumphs everywhere in ways large and small, from the church surviving two millennia of sinners to reach us with its sacraments, to the blessings of providence that reach us each day, from the defeat of the Nazis and the fall of the Soviet bloc, to the neighbors who make our communities livable. To live in a world like this and not believe is what's amazing. Quote, he was not able to perform any mighty deeds there, the gospel says, then significantly adds, apart from curing a few sick people by laying hands on them. So even in Nazareth, even in a town that rejects him, he is still curing people, and they still refuse to believe. To see the fruits of the wisdom and mighty deeds of Jesus Christ with your very eyes and still reject him is amazing. Or to see the wisdom of the magisterium in our own day and still reject him, or to see Eucharistic miracles, or the Guadalupe Tilma that still hasn't deteriorated, or the Fatima a miracle of the Son and still reject him is also amazing. But even in the most faithful Catholic circles, Jesus is probably still amazed by our lack of faith to this day. Father Thomas Dubay, in his book, Deep Conversion, Deep Prayer, identifies in the best of Catholics a, quote, remarkable resistance to holiness, end quote. We break from mortal sin, then congratulate ourselves at how wonderful we are, even as the church tells us daily, that more is expected of us we see clearly that we are created to live a life of holiness a canonizably saintly life a life devoted to the good of our neighbor and opposed to venial and not just mortal sin but nonetheless we celebrate our bare conversion and progress no further feeling triumphant we're like runners celebrating that we started the race just a few paces after pushing off from the starting blocks but luckily Jesus does have the 12 who are willing to progress further, the apostles, and he sends them out without money to rely totally on him. I love what going to Europe does for students here at Benedictine College. They go to Europe, they end up traveling, they end up misunderstanding a train schedule or not knowing about a holiday and end up discovering that they are not in control of their own lives and that the system is not always there to save them and that that's okay. People help. Things come along to aid them at the right time. You learn how to trust in the universe or how to trust in providence. The 12, of course, have to have an even more radical dependence on the providence of God. They were told to bring no extra clothes, no bread, no money, no bag to collect money. In other words, they looked very different from the typical traveling preachers of the day who you'd better believe had means to collect money. They weren't looking for customers to enrich them. They weren't looking for donors. They were looking for converts that they could enrich with the kingdom. And the apostles get a great lesson. Take the first house that offers you shelter. Don't worry who those people are. You aren't trying to find the cool people or the attractive people. You're looking for the people who will welcome you. If no one welcomes you, move on. Don't beg them to welcome you. Don't obsess over winning them over. Just go. The detail is given that you should shake the dust from your feet. There's an Old Testament story about Naaman, the Gentile leper king, who's cured of his leprosy by the Hebrew prophet Elisha. He's so impressed he wants to take a cartload of earth with him to have the Holy Land always there with him at all times. The apostles want to do the opposite of that, shake that territory off so that they don't carry even a vestige of remembrance of the place, destroy it from their consciousness, move on totally. The gospel says, quote, so they went out and preached that men would repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many that were sick and healed them, End quote. Now this gets even more crazy. When these men confronted each household, they weren't preaching only a positive message. They were telling people that they should repent and change their lives. That's a really hard thing to do. Imagine doing that. You have to go tell people to change their mode of living, that it's all wrong, and that they need to start over and live differently. It helped a great deal that they were able to cast out many demons and heal people. What they were discovering is that Jesus's power is not something he holds on to for himself only. He's willing to share it with others, with them. We talked about casting out demons before, but there's a gospel passage that's relevant here. In Matthew, it comes between the story of the woman with the hemorrhage and the story of the sending out of the 12. And it says, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly charged them, See that no one knows it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. As they were going away, behold, a mute demoniac was brought to them. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demon by the prince of demons. End quote. Well, first of all, this is a great example of how Jesus' healings work. Just like the woman with the hemorrhage, the blind men are simply there by the road when he passes by, and they have to follow him, insisting over and over again that he cure them. And apparently, they even follow him into a house? That's what we have to do. Don't just ask Jesus. Follow him and keep insisting. Get pushy about what you need. One reason Jesus does this, I think, is to make sure that we really are ready and really desiring to be cured. It's not just a passing feeling that we want to be cured, but it's something that we understand will touch us to our core and something that we'll be committed to. But I also like how the healing of the mute guy is a classic example of how the two groups respond to Jesus. The crowds are amazed, and the Pharisees say, He is casting out demons by the prince of demons. We're so selective in what we see and hear, we're far from open minded. People have their minds made up before they hear the facts. We don't hesitate to interpret the facts to fit what we think rather than changing what we think to fit the facts. But I also like the symbolic value of both these cures. He helps people see and speak. That means he helps them see beyond their own puny lives and speak to connect themselves with others, with hearers, to reach out. And it's funny how Jesus tells the blind men who have been cured not to tell anybody, but they can't help it. They tell everybody. As Pope Francis said, anyone who has truly experienced God's saving love does not need much time or lengthy training to go out and proclaim that love, End quote. That's exactly what he is asking the apostles to do on their mission, to see others with new eyes and speak to them with a new voice. And the content of their message can be how they personally have been transformed by repentance. Here Jesus tells the story of the 12, the apostles, the chosen few, Later, we'll see the story of the 72 being sent, but there's a message here for both priests and religious and lay people for each of us. As Pope Francis put it, quote, every Christian is challenged here and now to be actively engaged in evangelization. The gospel message is capable of responding to the desire for the infinite, which abides in every human heart, and every person is worthy of our giving. Not for their physical appearance, their abilities, their language, their way of thinking, or for any satisfaction that we might receive, but rather because they are God's handiwork, his creation. Everybody is worth it because everybody is as big a deal as each of us is. But the primacy of evangelization is important to talk about here. Like I said, if we celebrate just our conversion, we are celebrating prematurely. And if we think that just because Jesus spent some time focused on us, we're ready to rest in him for eternity, we are badly mistaken. Meeting Jesus is the beginning, not the end of our spiritual journey. Here on earth, life is a battle, a battle we have to join, but modern man is not really ready for that. Modern man has been marked by a stasis, a kind of weird self-obsession for decades now. It started long before the internet, but smartphones, video games, YouTube, and social media have only made it worse. I love the poem by T.S. Eliot, called The Love Song of J. Alfred Proofrock, And it always seems to me to sum up this predicament we modern individualists are in, always looking at the world and never entering it. Here's some of what the poem says. Quote, and indeed there will be time, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse, end quote. We're all like that stuck in a moment of decision and indecision, looking out at the world as if we're a mere observer and saying, do I dare disturb the universe? Carl Jung said that our problems stem from our mistaking life. Life is a battlefield, but we treat it like it should be a place to be comfortable. Then we find ourselves suffering from all kinds of neuroses and pathologies. In other words, we mistake the world for heaven and find out the hard way it is not heaven. It's a mess, and we're surrounded by people made in God's image and likeness who are disfigured by life. Jesus gets it. He goes home to Nazareth and gets rejected one last time and shows that we have no home on earth. If even his family won't accept him, we can't expect any better. Our family will tend to look at us and see the smallest version of ourselves that they can remember. I imagine that the woman with the hemorrhage can't go home either. She can't go back to the routines of uncleanness she had for 12 years. But she can't stay where she is either. She can't stare at the universe and celebrate her cure. She has to engage. She has to give herself away. Nietzsche said to become who you are. And Sartre said to create yourself. But you only become who you are when you give yourself away. Carl Jung talks about that tribe that believed if they didn't do their rituals, the sun wouldn't rise and cross the sky so they always did it. We have to be like that. We're eternal and infinite. So to be happy, we have to do something eternal and infinite. If we don't, we're like a work dog stuck in a city apartment. We go crazy. We were made to carry a load, to confront the world, to be sent in some way, even if it's just to our own family, even if it's just through prayer, even if we're just praying for the missionaries, we are meant to be part of that work. You only become who you are and create yourself when you get lost in work that has eternal stakes. Even those who can snap out of the stasis of J. Alfred Prufrockism are still trapped in a world of indecision. Think of how we have alienated ourselves from each other in the 21st century. We used to make our work by our body, by the sweat of our brow, impacting the world and changing it and shaping it for the sake of other human beings, and many people still do that. But a lot of us work by our psychology now. We make a living by our skill set and our work doesn't touch the physical world. And we don't directly see who we are impacting or how and if we are impacting people at all. Our kids have no idea what we do all day even after we explain it in a modern job. And at home, we used to entertain ourselves by using our bodies, playing sports, playing cards, telling stories, conversing. In other words, we didn't entertain ourselves, we entertained others, and that's the best entertainment of ourselves of all, because it opens the prison of our minds and forces us into contact with other eternal, infinite beings. But we no longer mostly entertain others, we mostly entertain ourselves through technology. We turn on the TV in the corner of the prison of our mind and stare. We used to be defined by relationships, our relationship with our boss or with our family, Now we are defined by a personal brand we cultivate and can take with us wherever we go next. It's all hyper-attention to ourselves and it hurts us. To be human, we need to be responsible for each other. We need to touch each other, see each other, and interact with each other and change the world in small ways that we know are large because we are eternal and infinite. Let's be practical about this. Jordan Peterson, who's a Jungian psychologist, has a great rundown of what he would say to a patient who says that he's depressed. He wants to find out, are you depressed, or do you just have a lousy life? So he tries to find out if his patient has friends. Do they have a family of some kind, some kind of intimate relationship? Do they have a job or career? Are they using their mind to the level they are capable? Do they use their time outside work wisely? Or are they addicted, beholden to temptations of one kind or another? Are they engaged in their community? If their answer is no to too many of those things, that's why they're depressed. Well, wow, Jesus provides all of that for his disciples in one fell swoop when he sends them out two by two. He pairs each of them with somebody, forcing them into an intimate relationship, forcing them to share trials and joys and hardships with the one they are paired to go out with. They're also out increasing their circle of friends, coming in contact with the other eternal, infinite beings. And he's also giving them responsibility, something that won't happen if they don't do it, and giving them a job with clear deliverables, eternal deliverables. He's also asking them to use their mind to the hilt. They will have to stretch their minds quite a bit to explain Jesus and the kingdom to new people with fresh objections every day. At the barest level, he's giving them a hugely productive way to use their time and making them too busy and too poor to have addictions. And he's engaging them in the community so fully, the communities will literally change worldwide because of their engagement with their community. This is a way to transform someone's life with purpose. I love the way Miles Connolly puts this in his novel, Mr. Blue, in which the title character tells the narrator that he is lucky that he is a Christian. Mr. Blue lives like the apostles on top of a skyscraper, owning nothing but the bare necessities. He explains what he does have, though, in a speech on top of a skyscraper in New York City. Quote, Without Christ, we would be little more than bacteria, breeding on a pebble in space, or glints of ideas in a whirling void. Because of him, I can stand here and out under the cold immensity, and know that my infinitesimal pulse beats and acts and thoughts are more important than the whole show of a universe. Because of Christ, he says, my hand, my feet, my poor little brain, my eyes, my ears, all matter more than the whole sweep of the constellations, and he motions to the star filled sky above. This is what Jesus Christ gives to us an eternal purpose with infinite implications. When a boss lets you know that you've caught their attention or caught the attention of management, or a neighbor tells you that they look up to you, the experience isn't just flattering, it's challenging. Once you know that more is expected of you, you have to work harder to keep from disappointing those high expectations. Well, God takes that same approach here, and we also hear it in St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, where he says, God chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and without blemish before him. And he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, end quote. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on that passage, points out that God's choice of us, quote, neither has nor can have any cause but the will of God alone, end quote. God doesn't call us because he needs our help. He doesn't call us because we're special. He calls us because we need his call to reach our full potential. And that's the last thing I want to say here. Father Joseph Cavanaugh tells a story about his encounter with Mother Teresa as a young priest. He would later become an important philosopher, but he struggled with the question of what he should be doing with his priesthood early on. Should he continue to serve the poor in obscurity in Calcutta, or should he enter academic life? He decided to ask Mother Teresa herself to pray for him. He told her to ask God to give him the gift of clarity. I was surprised when she said she would not pray for clarity, he said. She called his desire for clarity an attachment that he needed to let go of. She said, what I needed was trust. Father Kavanaugh told Mother Teresa that he only wanted what she had. Didn't she have clarity? She seemed to be certain of what she should be doing at all times. She said that she never had clarity, he said. All she ever had was trust. Well, that's us today. We had that beautiful moment of closeness to Jesus and that release from our wound, but now we're facing the world. Jesus isn't there in the same way. Our wound was bad, but at least it focused us. It gave us a daily struggle. And now without it, we're not quite sure what to focus on. Jesus has to go out, make a friend, take responsibility for our lives and try to impact those of the people we come in contact with. They are infinite, eternal, just like us. And we don't know how it will end. But we know we can trust that if we do what we are supposed to do, we will be part of Jesus's own extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.